The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello and welcome to The Week in Art, I'm Ben Luke. This week, the artist activists at the heart of Russia's biggest protests in a decade, and how the Indian Prime Minister is using heritage and museums to rewrite the country's history. We talked to Lolia Nordic, an artist, DJ and activist in St. Petersburg who appeared in a video released this week by Pussy Riot, Russia's most famous cultural activists who caused huge ructions in the country with their punk prayer in Moscow's Cathedral of Christ the Saviour in 2012. And we talked to the academic Sarova Zaidi about Navendra Modi and Indian heritage. And for this episode's work of the week, Navid Noor talks about Walter de Maria's Earth Room in New York. When you finish listening to this, why not check out the complete second series of our other podcast, A Brush With. In each episode, I talk to an artist about their influences and cultural experiences. The guests in series two are Ragnar Kjartansson, Christina Qualls, Ronnie Horn, Rachel Whiteread, Tracy Rose, Tel R, Charles Gaines and Tala Madani. As they talk about the books they read, the music they listen to and the artists they most admire, we learn not just about their tastes, but the profound effect of culture on their lives and work. Subscribe to A Brush With on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you're listening now. Now, protests erupted across Russia on the 23rd and 31st of January in support of the jailed opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Navalny's film about a luxury palace allegedly built for President Vladimir Putin has been viewed over 100 million times since it was released on YouTube on the 19th of January. Countless protesters were arrested at the demonstrations, among them one of the leading members of Pussy Riot, Masha Alekina, who was sentenced to two months house arrest for violating sanitary epidemiological norms that could spread COVID-19. Pussy Riot released a video to their song Rage in response and dedicated it to all Russian political prisoners. The video featured numerous figures in the Russian cultural scene, among them the feminist artist activist Lolia Nordic. I spoke to Nordic about her experiences at the protests and the role of artists in them. Lolia, I was really interested in something that you said in a piece which is on the Calvert Journal website this week. Uh, You made a point of saying that the protests are not just about Navalny and can you I just wondered if you could unpack that a bit there is a perception perhaps in the west that the protests have been triggered by Navalny and are about Navalny they're not are they it's about much more than that uh yeah there's definitely much more than that because Navalny he's just like the only bright figure in the opposition right now and he has a huge capacities his team and the organizations that he runs, they have huge capacities to speak to the large audiences and bring them to the streets. So uh, I think he is the strongest oppositional leader right now, but uh, not all of the people who go out on the streets, they see him as the next president. Not all of the people who go out uh, to protest, they totally agree with him in his political views, in his policy, in his uh, views on uh, what's the future of Russia is going to be. And I think it's cool, but um, now we are in, in a situation when we um, have really few chances to make such huge amount of people go out. So at this point, it doesn't really matter what is your opinion about Navalny's policies and his views. We just have to go out right now because we, have, we, we can't wait any longer. We have to use all the possibilities to be heard, to be seen, to shake the system and to make some change. Can you set the scene for us a bit? Because you, there, there have obviously been protests in St. Petersburg that you've been part of. Can you describe these protests and compare them to other rallies and protests that you've been on? How do they compare? Mm, I think it, well, these were like 23rd and 31st. These were the largest protests that I've seen in St. Petersburg for the last 10 years, I guess. Uh, and uh, like people were 
going from every direction to the place where we gathered and from every tiny street, from every prospect, every, like every direction. And it was amazing feeling that a lot of different people, different ages, uh, they all got together to protest and to say that we are tired of this system and we want some changes. And uh, it was uh, interesting that when the first protest started in 20, like on 23rd of January, uh, police wasn't that brutal that day. So they were like, I saw police brutality a lot, but that first day was like, not the worst day that I've seen in terms of police brutality, but 31st was awful. I think the orders to the police were different in these two days because uh, I've been to a lot of rallies, to a lot of protests, and it's very weird and very, I don't know, disturbing when you see the same faces of same police officers and like, you know, on Monday, they're very polite and they're very gentle and they're saying that we're here to protect you. But on Tuesday, they're beating you up and they're grabbing you and like pulling your hands and legs and grabbing you to the police station. And the, these are the same people, but with different orders, different days. And I think that's what we saw like on these two days of the main pro last protests. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the, the most notable in terms of the art community, the most notable arrest is the house arrest of Masha from Pussy Riot. Can you give us a flavour of how much your community has been affected in terms of arrests or police brutality? We had a hugest amount of arrests uh, these days because 5,000 people were, more than 5,000 people were detained all over the country during these protests. Uh, several of my friends are now uh, charged with uh, 10 days of arrests, 14 days of arrests. These are people who were just on the streets. They were just walking on the streets. They were not violating any laws. Some of them were on the streets on the protest for their for their first time, and they're shocked by these actions of the government. And uh, of course, uh, different people react differently. For example, Masha, she's way more experienced in this uh, than some other of my friends and some other activists who didn't have that experience before. They didn't face arrests. Maybe they were charged with some fines several times but uh, being arrested for 14 days is a shock for a lot of people especially when you did completely nothing you did nothing wrong you were just on the street and you were just grabbed randomly by police officers and by special forces so uh, now we have a huge problem that uh, there is a lack of space for detained people in St. Petersburg and in Moscow. And uh, so people were arrested on Sunday and some of them are still not um, put in the place where they should be detained. Some of the people waiting for days in the police buses on the streets, they sleep there. Uh, they don't have a proper toilet there. They don't have a proper access to food there. They have to sleep. Uh, like on each other, on the seats, on the ground of the bus. And this is completely awful. I think this is a terrible violation of human rights that's happening right now. And I'm wondering why uh, we don't see crowds of, uh, I don't know, different uh, international organizations and human rights defenders there where these buses are now staying with uh, like thousands of people who are waiting to be detained and have to sleep in these buses. I think it's cruelty. And I think that international community should be very aware and should take some action to defend human rights of these people who are now arrested and who are now, especially who are now in these buses waiting on the streets to be detained. I mean, it's really striking that Pussy Riot issued this video rage of which you're a part mm -hmm. this week. And it was very pointed in the information they put out alongside that video that it's it's 
that they are supporting political prisoners. And I guess that's that's not just because of Masha's particular experience, but because they are seeing lots of the people in their community in the conditions that you're describing, basically. Yeah, because all these people, no matter what are their backgrounds, they're now kind of equal in this situation. Because even some famous people, some famous uh, people of arts and of science are detained and no, nobody can do nothing with it. Even though like the system uh, went really tough and uh, I think they're showing us their strength and that they will do everything. They will break any laws to like put us down and to stop us. And I think this is, this is a huge sign of it that there will be no dialogue in this situation for like in the future. But uh, speaking about the video, we were filming it a year ago. And I think now this song and this video is like even more um, important than it was one year ago, because a year ago we didn't have such a sharp political situation. We didn't have this large protest a year ago. Uh, we still had Putin mm, that time, but we didn't have this energy on the streets. And I think this video and this song uh, that Nadia wrote, it was released right on time. But I have to say that it wasn't released a year ago because when we were filming this video, police broke into the film studio and they like ruined all of our plans. And the next day, 13 uh, people from the shooting were detained also for a night in, at the police station for nothing, for just being with Pussy Riot. Yeah, I mean, that's, re that's the really interesting thing about the video is because after the song itself, there's then this sequence in which you see the police arrive and accuse the band and the, the organisers of taking part in the promotion, the illegal promotion of LGBT issues, right? So... So it's clear from there, that, and it relates very much to this present moment because Masha has been under house arrest because she's accused of trumped up charges relating to COVID, right? So there's always an excuse for why they're making the arrests, right? Yeah, it is. And uh, now we have several reasons for the arrests. Uh, I personally, myself, uh, had searches, police search my family home on Sunday uh, they like knocked on the door at 7 a.m. My parents were completely shocked. They never experienced this thing before. And I don't live with my parents, but it's my official address. That's why they came there. They came to several activists uh, in St. Petersburg, like in the morning, right before the this uh, second protest. And they searched through all, the, all of the things for two hours, like... Uh, my parents couldn't reach anyone because they were like phones were forbidden. They just had to stand there and watch the search. So this is like a just a terror. I think this is a state terror. This is a political repression. And uh, they told my parents that they accused me in violating some law for blocking streets. And I don't know, something like that. And a lot of activists went through this, like several activists in St. Petersburg went through the same searches and were accused on breaking this, on violating this law. But it was like, I don't know, they just, they are coming up with these ideas, with these weird laws that nobody broke, nobody violated it, but they are trying to like pull up the system to make it look like we could do it just by standing on the streets, by just by walking like on the streets during the protests. I wanted to ask you particularly about your feminist activism, because that's obviously part of all of this, isn't it? And, um, and in particular, there are some very concerning events relating to feminist activists um, across Russia. Can we begin by talking about Daria Apohonchic? Because she has been arrested, in actual fact, for, defend for making artwork that defended another feminist activist. So could, could you talk about her? Yes, Dasha Apohonchic, she also had a search this Sunday last Sunday, uh, at the same time that my family had. But unfortunately, she was at home. Uh, she was at home with her kids. And uh, they searched her home for six hours. And then they took her to the police station, 
also accusing her not as a, a person who violated this law of blocking streets and everything, but the person who sees the, the violation. So it's an, an accomplice, essentially. Yeah, I guess so. They searched her home for six hours. Then she spent hours at the police station explaining herself to the police. And they took her, a lot of her stuff. They confiscated her laptops, her phones, phones of her kids, everything, like all the flashcards. They took some like feminist uh, posters, some stickers. So they do it all the time. They like uh, they find everything political. And even if you have, I don't know, like uh, some basic feminist uh, illustration stickers, they will take it and make it like an evidence there that you are doing some political actions, that you are some radical or something. So uh, yeah, Daria was under huge pressure during last year because they made her, they gave her a status of um, foreign agent. You maybe you heard of it, some like NGOs in Russia who uh, like fight for human rights and who do social work uh, to uh, like to punish them to um, like to make their life less easier, a government puts this status on people, on persons and on organizations, like they're foreign agents and uh, like this status bring troubles to their work and uh, brings like um, a lot of attention from the special forces and the police to their work. So Dasha is one of the first uh, persons who got this status because before that only NGOs got this status. So not persons, but um, whole organizations so Dasha was one from the first five people and now she have to like everything she posts is online everything she writes every work she does she have to like put these huge letters caps lock that this is a post of the foreign agent and I think this is humiliating and this is uh, another another tool of our state terror that tries to humiliate us they try to like mark us as some radicals and some like people that don't have right for their opinion and uh, uh, speaking of Dasha uh, she supported a lot of activists uh, as a feminist and she supported Yulia Tsvitkova and uh, Yulia Tsvitkova is still her case is still going on she's uh, uh, still going to this like one court after another they're all ridiculous because she's accused in uh, promoting like lgbtq plus propaganda so-called one and uh, um, about uh, creating pornography and by pornography police in our state means her feminist illustrations with body positive illustrations with female bodies and human bodies uh, and um, this is completely ridiculous political case. So uh, Dasha was doing several actions to support Yulia and she was uh, arrested for them too. She, she was uh, charged with fines and recently she had uh, a court where she actually won because she had a really great lawyer, also a feminist who made them go back with these fines. So she won the case. But still, she is under the ongoing pressure right now. And this, like Sunday, uh, last Sunday shows it because she had this terrible surge. Can, can you set the scene a bit more on the feminist movement in Russia and the conditions under which you're operating? Because as, as you say, the, the, the images that um, Yulia produced would be in most countries of the world regarded as incredibly innocuous just feminist imagery but but she has been arrested and accused of pornography as you say um what are the issues facing women in russia at the moment we're facing a lot of issues here and i think the main problem is as i always say in the most critical one is domestic violence and violence in general gender-based violence we, don't, we still don't have a law which would support domestic violence survivors and gender-based violence survivors. And we have uh, a lot of terrible situations, thousands, uh, like hundreds of women, uh, they die from the actions of their partners. And 80% of women who are now in prison in Russia, 
they are there uh, because of self-defense. Because we don't have this law when women are facing uh, domestic violence and she like accidentally kills her partner uh, while self-defensing. It's like the state doesn't see it as a self-defense because we don't have a proper law uh, to make it so. So all the women that survived domestic violence and accidentally killed their partner while self-defensing, they are going to jail. And 80% of women in Russian jails right now are there because of it, because of this situation. And uh, a lot of activists uh, and uh, a lot of feminist activists as well and political activists, they're working for years to make this law pass. But I see that we have a huge conservative lobby in our state, in our government that are um, protesting this and they're trying to stop this law for years. But the good news is that the feminist movement in Russia grows very fast. And uh, I remember like seven years ago, eight years ago, the main centers of feminist activism were Moscow and St. Petersburg. But now we have uh, feminist initiatives all over the country, everywhere. A lot of cities, small cities, big cities, uh, feminist activity happens all over uh, the country. and. Uh, we are building a network, we're building several networks, we're communicating like um, in between the regions of the country. And I think that uh, like in 10 years, we will be a huge political power. Already now I can see that we have a great future as like a, a, a political power. And already we're having our voices uh, being heard and being more loud day by day. So like I'm very I'm very like optimistic on this uh, case about uh, like the future of feminism in Russia. That's incredibly good to hear and I you know I salute your bravery I have to say. I wanted to ask you about your own work because you're a photographer and you take photographs of women and I wondered if you'd encountered any resistance to your work because of that. I see myself more as an artist uh, because I'm not only doing photography I'm working with different mediums and photography is one of them. So I'm doing video and I'm doing illustration, I'm doing performance art, uh, I'm doing art activism. So I think in my life, everything is very connected and um, like the way I approach things, it's, it's very intersectional. So I don't divide my activist uh, uh, actions from my um, art. And I'm also a DJ, so I'm working in the music field. And I try to make, like, I try to, pull, to put political issues in everything I do. Because I think now, especially in Russia, especially in my country, everything is political. I think in every country, everything is political. But I stand on this point, like, very famous point that personal is political. So I try to leave under this statement. And have you been able to show and share your work openly in, or have you encountered censorship? I personally didn't uh, face censorship um, in such hard ways as Yulia Tsvetkova, for example, but I faced a um, situation when we couldn't do exhibition because uh, the places where we wanted to do it uh, were afraid to show queer art, to show feminist art. So it's um, sometimes you get blocked, not by the state, but on the point where people who own the galleries, who own the places where you, you can do festivals, parties, uh, exhibitions, they are afraid because they know the laws, they know this, like, um, they know how our state and police behave, so they don't want problems. I had an um, experience a month ago uh, when we're doing art activist uh, practices with Moscow uh, feminist artist Katrin Ninashva. And she came to St. Petersburg and we collaborated with several young artists and activists. And we were just like for a week, we were gathering in an art space in downtown, discussing our practices, uh, uh, just talking, showing our work, uh, trying to... Uh, do something together, making plans. And someone just like called on us 
and someone knew that we are having these events there and called police and said that something like radical feminist activists are doing something dangerous in this place. <laughs> so they reported us with these words and it was an anonymous call to the police. So the police came to that place. It was like six policemen. Then another three person came with no police uniform, just like, I don't know who, who these people were. And uh, like they spent their hours and they were asking us questions. They were asking our IDs. But the worst thing that in two days after that, the owner of this building, of this art place, he just kicked out the people who were holding this art place. Because um, obviously he got scared that police came there and that someone reported about some radicals, some feminists doing dangerous stuff, which sounds ridiculous to us right now when we're speaking about it. But it doesn't sound ridiculous to the person who owns the place and know that he lives in Russia, where he can go to jail any second. So that is a problem. You can do something like connected to feminist issues or political issues, and the place can get shut down in a second. Last question, and you mentioned that you felt optimistic about feminism. Do you feel optimistic generally in terms of, you know, this is the first time that a generation that effectively has never known anything other than Putin is out and protesting? Does that add a certain significance to these protests? And therefore, do you feel optimistic in general about the future of Russia? For me, I don't see it in terms of generations, because every time I go uh, on the streets, I see people of very different ages and I don't know why but like federal television in Russia and like I don't know pro-government media they always cover this protest like it's some school boys and school girls and like some only students like stupid kids are going out but it's not true a lot of older people are there like people of like people in their 30s, in their 40s, in their 50s, in their 70s, a lot of people. Uh, it's a range of ages there, and for me, it's very optimistic because I think it would be, it wouldn't be that great if that if there were only kids, if there were only teenagers. Uh, we see that a lot of people from with different backgrounds are out, and they're like skipping their jobs uh, they're canceling their weekends to go out and to risk their safety because they're so tired of it uh and i think for like day by day uh, there are more and more people who are who are just tired of this system and they they like maybe they were afraid yesterday but today they are not afraid anymore because they are they are even more tired than they were afraid and the risk that they're taking is at least some action to i don't know to break out of this uh, loop of this political swamp that we are in for like 20 years by now okay well lolia thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and talking to us about it thank you You can read our reports on the Russian protests at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iPhone and iPad, which you can get from the App Store. Coming up, we hear about Modi's grand building plans in India and the artist Navid Noor's take on Walter de Maria's Earthroom. But first, here are some of the top stories on the Art Newspaper's website this week. In a unanimous opinion that could make it harder for the heirs of victims of the Holocaust to reclaim art through the US justice system, the Supreme Court in the States has sided with Germany in the high-profile Guelph treasure claim, rejecting the argument that the European country can be sued in the US for taking art from its own citizens as part of the Holocaust. Martha Lufkin reports that the disputed collection at the centre of the case, the medieval Guelph treasure, estimated to be worth at least 200 million euros, will remain for now in Berlin at the Kunstgewerbe Museum or the Applied Arts Museum in Berlin, while the case returns to a lower court. 
around 100 leading figures in the French art scene have published an open letter calling on the culture minister, Rosalind Bachelot, to lift COVID-19 restrictions on the country's galleries and museums and allow them to reopen, quote, as widely and as soon as possible, Hannah McGiven writes. The Change.org petition, launched by the Palais de Tokyo in Paris, has garnered more than 3,000 signatures so far. Signatories include Emma Levine, the president of the Palais de Tokyo, Nicolas Bourriot, the managing director of Montpellier Contemporain, and Biche Kuriga, the former Venice Biennale curator, who's now the director of the Fondation Vincent van Gogh in Arles. The letter invokes museums' essential role in promoting mental well-being amid the pandemic. We wish to be able to take care of visitors now, it concludes. Art, like health, helps to heal the human soul. And finally, the Spanish government has negotiated a deal to keep the prestigious Carmen Thies and Borna Misa collection in Spain, Gareth Harris reports. The new arrangement struck with Baroness Carmen Cervera, the widow of the industrial tycoon Hans Heinrich von Thies and Borna Misa, who died in 2002, means that more than 400 works housed at the Thies and Borna Misa Museum in Madrid will remain in Spain. The collection includes works by Monet, Sisley, Renoir, Duggar, Rodin, Matisse and Picasso. You can read these stories and more on the website or on the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. As we go deeper into the winter season, Christie's continues to bring exciting new discoveries through its auction calendar. Join Christie's on an antique hunting trip to Brighton in the online auction of Patrick Moorhead, Hidden Treasures. The sale, for which bidding is open now and continues until the 15th of February, is curated by the legendary antique dealer himself, presenting an eclectic mix of objects and styles spanning Regency furniture, Chinese ceramics, Meissen porcelain, clocks, chandeliers and more. The refreshed schedule complements Christie's private sales. Bid and buy art at any time and from anywhere. Find out more on christies.com. Welcome back. Now, last month, the Indian Supreme Court gave the green light to the Prime Minister Navendra Modi's £2 billion plan to entirely rebuild several of India's government buildings in a three-kilometre stretch of Delhi designed by Edwin Lutyens in the early 20th century and known as the Central Vista. Another contentious building project is the Ram Temple in the northern city of Ayodhya, which is dedicated to the god Ram, an incarnation of the deity Vishnu, who many Hindus believe was born in the city. Buildings and heritage have long been at the heart of Modi and his right-wing party, the BJP's, reimagining of India along the lines of Hindu nationalism, or Hindutva as it's known. Perhaps the most notorious example was the destruction of the Babri Masjid, or Babri Mosque, in 1992, following a rally organised by the BJP and the VHP, an allied right-wing organisation. The Ram Temple will be built on the site where the Babri Masjid once stood. Meanwhile, modernist buildings, synonymous with the Indian National Congress, India's centre-left party, are also being torn down. The art newspaper's Kabir Jala spoke to Sarova Zaidi, an anthropologist, philosopher and professor at the Jindal School of Architecture, whose work focuses in part on architecture and religion in India, about Modi and his government's approach to heritage and museums. So you're in Delhi right now, where an enormous protest organised by Indian farmers is currently underway. And this is the second mass protest to take place against the Indian government since uh, Modi was re-elected in 2019. So can you tell us a little bit about the political climate in Delhi right now? The first thing that I want to say is the political climate in our country is extremely tense because of the fact that the farmers' protest, at least in the last month, has catapulted into a very strong opinion against the ruling government. The Delhi borders are kind of sealed from all sides, uh, especially in the last week. The government has built the city like a, you know, like a barricade city. There has been suspension of internet in these areas. The barricading is uh, brutal right now. Uh, and it's very, very uh, abusive to citizenship, to the idea of who is a citizen and there is surveillance. Uh, so it's not a very nice place to be in right now. And for me to do this and speak about this is already something that is giving me a sense of self-doubt as a citizen. So, yeah, that's where we are at. And amid this massive unrest, Modi has decided to rebuild the central vista in Delhi to the tune of about £2 billion. And this is, of course, not the only contentious building project that has recently been greenlit. I am, of course, referring to the Ram Temple in Ayodhya. Can you please tell our listeners why these projects and what they represent are so controversial? 
So, you know, uh, actually, I want to start with the Central Vista. The Central Vista is part of a series of events and ideas that have been going on in India for the last 40 years. Uh, and it starts with 1992, uh, when the Babri Masjid is pulled down by people from uh, Hindutva factions like the RSS uh, and the BJP. And then uh, it is, in a sense, what I, as a, I'm a social anthropologist and I work on architecture uh, and nation states. And it is that is the moment where the fall of the Babri Mosque is the recasting of a new horizon of the nation state. And it is the most important event after the partition of India. And it is an event which looks at the fact that now the mosque dome has to be removed. And it's a, you know, one of the things that is you sometimes mentioned is that probably the first time that you saw the domes of Babri Masjid was when it was being pulled down. Uh, and before that, it was not something uh, that was really actually a matter. I mean, there was a court case going on, etc. Uh, the, the claim of the Hindutva groups was that it was built on the spot of where Lord Ram was born. And uh, interestingly enough, the court case of the Babri Masjid and the Ayodhya dispute goes on for 30 years. And then finally, the judgment comes uh, in the last few years, there are different kinds of judgments. And what was interesting there also is that a mythical god was made into a dual deity, as in a, mm -hmm. the court case was fought in the name of Ram, who is the god. And the real mosque was called a disputed property. So there's a very strange binary of how uh, something that was not real was made real through law, which is the god. And the mosque, which was real, was made into a contested property. In fact, they don't even call it the mosque uh, continuously in the legal document. The reason I'm going back to this whole story is because it is a watershed moment in the history of India, which leads to a lot of the things that we are seeing and experiencing right now in what I would call the architectural and the monumental horizons of the country. And this includes the Central Vista also. Uh, what is actually interesting uh, to think back on is the Archaeological Survey of India, you know, which was the first body that was set up in 1861 by the British. Now, this is a very interesting moment. Uh, 1861 is after the first war of independence of India, which is 1857. And I want to mention these dates because it's not chance that the British are setting up the Archaeological Survey of India in 1861, after about four or five years, when the first war of independence is fought, which is also called the revolt of uh, 1857. And one of the things they did in the setting up of the archaeological survey of India was to make spaces like the mosque, which was a public congregation space, especially because of the Friday prayers, they make it into a monument. So you delegitimize a building as a congregation space and you move, move to making it into a monumental aspect. And there's a very fantastic book, in fact, on this called by Kaveri Boer called Monumental Matters, which looks at these histories of the ASI. Interestingly enough, the ASI also has a role to play in what is happening in the Ayodhya and the Babri Masjid dispute case, right? And how powerful is the ASI in India? How much sway does it have in government? It has a lot of power because it is part of a bureaucratic system, right? Uh, it is what uh, people like Hannah Arendt and Gramsci, etc., even Foucault, would call the apparatuses of institutions and materials that the government functions through. And the examples of that are very, very telling, especially in the Ayodhya case, because the ASI, as far as my knowledge goes, and I looked it up uh, again, at some point said that, yes, there is something under the Babri Masjid structure, but we don't know if it is a temple. Some of them had even said, there were two uh, archaeologists who said they are Buddhist ruins, they are something else. So uh, there was a split in the way that the ASI was thinking, coming to the central vista, 
or the museums, etc. And what is going to happen vis-a-vis museums? I will come back to the Central Vista point about how uh, there's like a whole range of bureaucratic offices from environmental clearances, from the Delhi Development Authority, from land use offices, all the bureaucracies have given the permissions for it to come about. But returning to the Ram Temple, it's not just a temple now that is being built on this site, is it? It's also a museum and an amusement park, which are all telling the story of the epic Sanskrit tale of the Ramayana, which tells of the life of Ram. And I wanted to ask you, what does this mean? It's not just a temple, but they're turning this into a major pilgrimage site, which is devising this very, very brilliant and cohesive history of India. Actually, you know, uh, in Ayodhya, they built two museums earlier, Mm-hmm. which was smaller and now they're going to be redone. One is the Museum of Ram. Mm-hmm. So it's a very interesting use of the devices of the state, you know, and the modernist devices of the state. So the fact that there is this idea in a museum, there is a taxonomy of materials, of history, you know, of objects, uh, all the devices of modernity uh, that, you know, generate a museum or are part of the kind of frame of the setting up of an archive or a museum are now being used to evoke a mythical god. And that is what is the most interesting thing that is happening in in the contemporary moment with what is the Hindutva government. And I also wanted to, you know, uh, speak a little bit about what this format of modernization, monumentalization means Because, you know, in India, uh, and I'm a social anthropologist, I've worked on religious architecture. And one of the things that I used to notice is that in the last 30 years, people, uh, there was there is an idea of the ordinary sacred in India, right, Uh, where people can set up a little temple under a tree, there is an idea of, you know, some form of mixing of animism meets uh, religiosity. Even uh, in Muslim practices in India, Islamic practices in India, you have shrines, shrine cultures, you have not, you have great monumental mosques, but you also have mosques, you know, the idea of people coming together in a small park and reading the Friday prayers, or like in cities like Bombay, people read the prayers on the road. So there is a very uh, kind of organic, nearly the word is uh, used mostly syncretic, Uh, notion of religious practice, which is accepted in the secular frame of Indian uh, social and political life. What is very distinctly interesting here is the way in which the Hindutva groups have combined the monumental, the modernity and ideology to generate a new format of the architectural, of what they think is to be known as an idea of the future of a Hindu nation. So would you, t- would you term this a sort of hybrid model that they're using, or is it a completely new one that has no precedence um, with other leaders of the Republic? No, so they've definitely picked it from the past. And we know that, um, um, and I, want to, I wanted to mention this earlier also, which is India, when it, was, when it became independent in uh, 1947, Uh, Nehru's project, who was the first prime minister, was also a monumental architecture project, but it was inspired by socialist modernism. And uh, we have uh, Corbusier building Chandigarh, we have a lot of modernist buildings being built in Delhi. Um, Also big dam projects were started. So there was a huge kind of, as I call it, the recrafting of the socialist modernist horizon that Nehru generated and what is happening now is also using a frame which is modernist that we will build new and we will build for the future but we will build it on the basis of our ideology which is the ideology of a Hindu nation state of the future. It's not just politics, it's a destruction of the social life of religion. It's a destruction of the ordinary sacred. It is the destruction of, so they they are also flattening the plane on religiosity. 
uh, so you can you, if you are hindu and there is only one way to be a hindu which is to be a part of this agenda the promise of ayodhya and the way this construction of ayodhya temple is happening and the amount of money being raised for it and the plan that has been launched and these you know very sci-fi kind of videos of the new temple plan are about it's a very interesting way of projecting the future and i feel that what they've done is that they've mixed up the symbolic the real the modernist and the futurist you can't just say that they are a bunch of traditional people it's not that at all anymore it is not about the tradition and it is not about the past it is about resurrecting the past into a future which the past actually never looked like because hinduism was not about uh, you know monumentalization yes there are temples in the south which are huge and they're monumental and they were built by kings etc but it was in the it was never in this form uh so the design is extremely futuristic uh and it's based on it's kind of renegotiating what i would call a collective memory for the future and i think that brings us nicely onto the central vista this very very grand project to reimagine what the indian republic is what it looks like what its seat of power looks like why does modi first want to rebuild these buildings could you tell our listeners what these buildings look like and then why modi might want to rebuild them okay so uh, the central vista plan is uh, essentially it includes the parliament it includes what is called the president's house uh, it includes a lot of buildings that were built it was 1917 right when what is called lutyens delhi that was built there as a part of the british uh reinstating the capital of india and there's a chain of signifiers here and the chain of signifiers includes a very clear relationship to what has been built in the past so whether it is the mughal monument which is starting with babri or it is modernist architecture which was uh, something like the hall of nations which was built by raj rewal in the 1980s two years ago the government pulled it down at night time and they didn't want the modernist socialist a uh, kind of horizon to remain and then coming to the central vista the central vista plan is somewhere a translation of the rss's vision of what a hindu nation should look like and their idea of how they viewed the british which is very very different way of how gandhi would view the british could i just ask you to explain briefly what the rss is because i don't think our listeners might know the rss is supposed to be a cultural organization which was set up in 1920s i think and it was set up to facilitate the work of a hindu nation state or a hindu rashtra as it's called they called themselves a cultural organization but they had a set of cadres across the country in fact the person who assassinated uh, mahatma gandhi was from the rss because he did not like the fact that gandhi worked towards communal harmony that he uh, though he was a hindu he believed in respecting the faiths of others and they did not absolutely like his method of non-violence um they said that he has emasculated the hindu nation so they had a very hard line view on what a hindu person uh, a hindu political party or a hindu nation should look like it was a party which was completely communal and against muslims and till today it functions and it has become stronger and stronger and stronger under the new regime it has become uh, extremely open about what it does publicly so uh, it has uh, little organizing neighborhood organizing groups that they do and it's been growing in fact what i mentioned to you about the uh, drive to collect money for the ram temple are also being organized through the rss returning back to the central vista as to why modi wants to rebuild it Um I also wants to touch upon the idea that this is severing India from its colonial past which in a way doesn't seem like a bad thing necessarily but what are the risks and dangers of 
a complete severance from a colonial past? Oh, yeah. Well, the point is that if they were really interested in severing us from the colonial past, and this is sounding may sound a little bit cheeky, then they would shut down the railways. I mean, we would not have the railways if it wasn't for the British. So it's a very pick and choose method. It's about the fact that they want to uh, somewhere they don't wish to have a relationship to the past, which is functional. And if I was looking at the architect who's finally making the Central Vista plan, and it was very interesting how he kept saying things about how this building is now useless. You know, it doesn't accommodate people. It doesn't not able to hold in the number of offices, the government offices that it contained. Uh, you know, it's the different form of governance now. Um, it's dirty. It's not accessible. All these very regular tropes that every architect uses in, you know, recasting or justifying what they're doing. And uh, you know, Professor A. G. K. Menon, who uh, actually was one of the first people who leads a people a public forum called the Lok Satta group. And he actually talks about a very interesting point where uh, he's evoked Hannah Arendt and he's called the fact that the architect has become a part of the system of the banality of, you know, evil and routine. And the fact that there is no way that people who are involved in this project are not part of something that the Hindutva government is trying to resurrect. And I suppose the lingering question is, as you mentioned, India is at, at this economic impasse. It has its um, two worst financial quarters since records began. Why is Modi spending so much time and effort on cultural heritage? Might this be a distraction from policy failure elsewhere? I think it's not about a distraction. I think the optics of architecture, the optics of built environments of the uh, of what is done in material form even the statue that he built the statue of unity the sadar patel statue in gujarat right these are all optics of the state and you know i the best examples for this are of course the russians right uh, or saddam hussein statue in iraq or you know so they, so somewhere uh, certain kinds of regimes uh, play on the optics and the optic and so it's it's actually uh, very telling of the fact that uh, this device has been used constantly of generating both cultural icons of working with buildings of uh, you know the show and the glamour of these buildings uh, it's constantly been used historically so it's not actually something new. It's just that right now it is vetted with an ideology which has been extremely, uh, you know, communal. And it's about a very clear idea of a nation state. So that Modi's temple, Hindu temple in Ayodhya, destroys the street corner and the temple under the tree. It destroys Hinduism, actually. It doesn't, and it resurrects it, it only in its political and in this kind of what I call the alpha male form of Hindutva. So the destruction uh, is, is immense. It's a social destruction and the optics of it is what people are caught in. Modi and the BJP are also very much focusing on Indian museums. In the last union budget prior to the coronavirus pandemic, the finance minister announced that five new museums were going to be set up near archaeological sites. And recently, a museum in Agra, which is where the Taj Mahal is located, was changed from the Mughal Museum to that of a Hindu warrior king. So I want to also talk about what the relevance is of Modi and the BJP invading museum space so heavily. Uh, well, it is the classical uh, formation and fabrication of ideas of the truth. And if you have to, if you have to generate a new future, which is based on an ideology, which is the Hindutva ideology, you have to temper with the past. And the museum is that location where you temper with the past. You stick to the technique, so you're still calling it a museum, but as you stick to the techniques and the devices and the apparatuses of modernity, but you put in what you want as the truth. I mean, this is also a critique of modernity somewhere, you know, of what it can lead us to. So, yeah, so that's what he's doing. And I think these museums, um, I mean, the fact that you have a museum on Ram, it's, 
nearly surreal to think of it, right? And what would be in that museum, right? What evidence would we ever have of something like that? What would be the science of that museum? Uh, what is the notion of faith then? So are you making, is he making museums or is he making temples in the garb of museums? To what extent is all of this a triumph of Hindu nationalist ideology or could it also be interpreted perhaps as also a failure of 20th century modernism and the 20th century nation building project that you know was envisioned at the time of independence? Well, of course, part of the failure is of the left and of the fact that we could not contain certain things uh, when they started, because I literally gave you a genealogy of the Hindutva moments and pre and post independence. And post independence, the fact that we had the Babri Masjid demolished, and that was the time when the Congress was a ruling party. It's the proof is that the horizon was already set then. And then how do we actually go back? What do we go back to? the socialist modernism in a sense failed to rise to this occasion, to be able to contain uh, these things, even though constitutionally uh, we were very strong to contain these factors and we are a secular republic, democratic republic. It didn't work, something didn't work. I don't know what the future will actually look like. And if the future, which has been imagined and crafted, being crafted right now, will actually ever be undone. That is a scary thought indeed. Sarava, thank you very, very much. Yes, thank you. You can read more about this story on the website and the app. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. This week, the artist Navid Noor talks about Walter de Maria's The New York Earth Room, a landmark work in which de Maria filled a floor of the building at 141 Worcester Street in Soho with 197 cubic metres of earth. It was created in 1977 and the same earth remains in place today. The work, which was the third incarnation of the Earthroom, is now looked after by the Dia Foundation, co-founded by Heiner Friedrich, who showed the first version of the Earthroom in his gallery in Munich in 1968. Navid, you've chosen Walter de Maria's Earthroom, which is, of course is a permanent work in New York. Tell me about why you've chosen this. Well, the reason why I picked it was that the um, first time I went to New York was 2006, I think. And I heard about this piece uh, from a friend. Yeah, there is this room and it's full with earth. It's really amazing. And the guy wasn't into art, so he had no reference, nothing. You know, there's this room, you know, it's white and just full of earth. It's it's unbelievable. <laughs> and, and and the moment I, I landed, I was like, okay, something I need to uh, look for. And uh, okay, of course, within um, a few moments, I found out it's a piece by Walter de Maria. And I wanted to visit it. So I went there and yeah, it's very Porsche street with all these shops and things are dynamic, coffee shops, everything going on. And then, so what the hell do I huh? Oh, oh, there's this doorbell. So I press this doorbell, then I go up, like, where am I going? And then I went up and suddenly there's this desk, one guy is sitting there and that's it. And then you, you're in a loft in a building and you're just literally looking at a space filled with earth, like as far as you can see. And you can't really go around the corner, so you're sticking your neck as much as possible away from the glass as you can before you lose your balance just to see the corner. But you can't go around corners with your eyes. You just need to be there and uh, and see the whole, whole thing. And uh, I felt a bit odd because I was looking at the work there's this one guy looking at you, not really, but still looking at it. And it's quite intimate. So I, I couldn't just let go like, oh, it's me and the piece. So I was like, after five minutes, okay, man, thanks. <laughs> and I went down. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and then I did my uh, walk. I was like, what the hell was that? Let, let me go again. So I went again a bit more relaxed. Because you need to do it a few times because the first time it's just too practical you're just there you see this guy everything is white you see this earth and uh, now second time it, it was better and and now third time it went okay so actually when i was staying in new york i went a few times 
And I did it quite uh, often. Whenever I went to New York, I went to visit the Earth Room. And uh, the piece also changed in your brain. Because in the beginning, it's very awkward and very uh, special and very strange. Going, It's like going to... It has this kind of... Yeah, maybe it sounds really awful. But it has this kind of anti-Disneyland feel. You know, there is nothing to see, and yet there's so much to see. You know, it's exactly the other way around. That's kind of the crucial thing, isn't it? That it's sort of a space out of time, in the sense that, as you say, it's in Soho, so it's now in a very busy area, and there's a, there's a lot of wealth in that area, and yet this has been unchanged since 1977 when it was first installed there, and and yet this is New York. It's perpetually changing and somehow there's this consistency about this work so then as you say things are changing and yet they are not and at a certain moment i i was like wait a minute the real ingredient of this piece is time how in this case somebody owns time not as in the bigger new york space but there is a situation where time is being owned within those square meters and time, as we know, costs money. So one of the main pushes to produce this work was uh, uh, Heiner Friedrich, um, who was used to be his gallery, I found out. And then he saw the piece yeah. and he was like, well, no, we, it needs to stay there. I will move out my gallery. And he and his wife, they, Farah de Menil, they provided money in relationship to time. So that's actually the third ingredient for, for this work. You, know, need, you need space, you need to work, and then you need somebody who could uh, deliver uh, uh, money for time. And suddenly I was like, oh yeah, it's not just Walter de Maria doing this. No, he can do this and you could see a documentation, but the fact you're there, it's also because of uh, Heiner and his wife. And it was um, special to see that an artist needs to have also a dialogue with a private person or maybe in an institution. There's always this tiny, this invisible partner. It's always there. Maybe 90% of the people coming there, they don't have this extra relationship, but it's why the piece is still there. And that's what makes it so uh, special. That's right, because Heine was involved in the foundation of the Dia Foundation, right? Yeah. So, so it's, you know, it's from this. This was one of the sort of foundation works. This was the, you know. I don't want to go into Heine. It's like a deep rabbit hole, man, <laughs> with like many exits and no exits and their families. And it's, it's the same with a, a product. Like you develop a car. Okay, it can go from A to B. And then you have to have the vision of its need and you have to communicate this need to the people to buy it and in Heinrich's case is he found these artists and he's like well I feel this need there should be he called it a setting a place for an artwork and the place does not change and the artwork itself can speak so he has this need but there's no audience now how could I transmit this into you know getting it getting it out there and by making a foundation this is the way you can secure a certain space that's what he did but uh, going back to the earth room itself yeah i then visited new york for a few a few years i didn't visit new york and then i went back then i saw it again and it's like what is it actually i'm looking at you know and it's like it's earth but Earth is an active material. No, it's soil. There's, um, there is things could grow in it. it. It has a potential. It could blossom, and yet it's being kept in captivity. You know, for 40 years, and every seed has been taken out. Every mushroom, it's been like domesticated so heavily, and actually, it's very depressive work. You know, from one side, it's like you keep a piece of Earth out of its country it's like a, like a prison for a piece of earth and then you're looking at it and it may nothing may grow nothing may happen it will stay like this because we want to energize the dimension of earth or find a piece of poetry feel from a different perspective 
and it was uh, it was very strange to look at it from that point of view as well. I think that's what I like about the Walter de Maria that some people can go, this is so depressive, like uh, hijacking a piece of earth for life. Others will go, man, this you could sell this space for millions and you just fill it with earth. And so there's so many angles happening. I think as, lo- as long as this piece stays, the more angles it will get. And that I like about the work. Lastly, I wanted to ask you about how you've internalized the work and, and brought it into your own thinking about your own work. Has it influenced you in any way? Because obviously there are there's interesting things that you've just said now about transformation, for instance, which is such a key element of your work. And I wonder to what extent has it affected you or is it not as linear as that? The main thing what affected me and my work is more it doesn't matter what you do. If you, as an artist, you know, there's a difference between uh, creating a work and believing in a work. If you, as an artist, believe in a work and it can transcend a certain energy, it doesn't matter whatever it is you do and you can find another party who buys it or gives it space. That's where the magic happens in a way. If I just do it by myself on an island and there's no interaction and, will, and just vanish. It's just me cultivating my inner experience. But that's what I learned about uh, this piece that he definitely needed Heiner. You know, without Heiner, there was no work. But without the fire of Walter de Maria, there was no Heiner attracting to him. So this art, as what we are doing all together, is this dialogue always between the person who charged something and another person who could delay this charged part so others can see and keep on experiencing it. Navid, thank you so much for talking to us about this amazing work. Okay, happy to do. You can read more about the Earthroom at diaart.org, that's D-I-A-A-R-T.org. And you can find out more about Navid Noor's exhibition, apart from the secret that it holds, at the Max Hetzler Gallery website, maxhetzler.com. And it will be open to visitors when the UK lockdown eases, of course. And that's it for this episode. You can subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com, click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page and you'll find a range of subscriptions. And do subscribe to this podcast and a brush with if you haven't already done so, and please give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. You can find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julie Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks to Lolia, to Kabir and Sarova, and to Navid, and thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Thank you.